Uh, if you would turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. It is certainly good to be back together again. Are those cicadas? That's not like what was down at Princeton, though. Well, these are pleasant. Like, this is kind of like, you know, nice summertime outside, kind of. I was down in Princeton, and I felt like I was, it was like a Stephen King movie or something like that. It was a little freaky. All right, anyway, that being said, uh, it is good to be together again. It is good to be uh, gathered outside. I love it out here personally, um, but we are grateful to have the indoor option uh, for weather like the last couple of weeks that we had. But uh, thank you very much for being here this morning uh, and praying that the Lord would just bless each of us, speak to us through his word, uh, minister. You know, a lot of times you come to a, a setting like this, a gathering like this Sunday morning, and, you know, you're not going to necessarily be knocked off your feet. It's not going to be like, oh my gosh, that was the greatest thing ever. Uh, it's just good food. It's just a good solid meal that I rarely eat in the physical, uh, but in the spiritual, it's just a good solid meal to invest into yourself uh, and be strengthened. And, and that's what we're praying that the Lord would do. And we've been going through the book of Acts, uh, just sort of working our way verse by verse as far as each week will sort of allow. Uh, and we come today to chapter 9, uh, verse 32. Uh, and we're, our intention today will be to finish the chapter, so you can begin to find that there. As you're looking for that, I'll point out to you, I'll draw your attention to the, something that you may realize. If you've been with us or if you've studied the book of Acts before, you know that in a sense, in the human sense, there are two main characters that Luke follows. Now, he, he draws our attention to some other individuals here and there. I think the, the main character of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit and the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. But from the human perspective, those two main characters seem to be Peter and Paul. And the first half of the book pretty much focuses on Peter and what Peter has been doing and where Peter has gone and the way in which the Lord kind of fulfilled that little prophecy to Peter about giving him the keys sort of unlock those doors and the way that he brought the message to the Jews there on Pentecost and to the Gentiles there in Caesarea and in other locations. And he's the, the primary focus in the beginning of the book. As we come to chapter 14 and, and the remainder of the book, the last 15 or so chapters of the book, what we'll notice is that Paul becomes sort of that central figure. Now about three weeks ago, Luke, the author of Acts, transitioned away from Peter and he began to look at people like Philip and Stephen and this fellow, Rabbi Saul, who we now know would go on to become the Apostle Paul. But today, in chapter 9, he goes back to Peter. He'll stay with Peter for another three or four chapters. And so we've drifted away a little bit from the Apostle Peter and his early first century ministry but we return to him today, and we pick up in verse 32. It says this, Now as Peter went here and there among, all, among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. A couple things you should take notice of. Notice in verse 33 where it says, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now the Bible, when it refers to saints, it's a Greek word, it's hagias, and it means the set-apart ones. 
A lot of times we think of saints as special, unique individuals. Oftentimes churches will decide that person was a saint because this particular commission determined that that particular person was a saint. But the Bible sees sainthood as something different. All of those that are set apart unto God, that name the name of Jesus Christ, the Bible sees them as saints. And so here, when it says that Peter went here and there among them all, and he went down also to the saints at, that lived at Lydda, it's referring to the fact that Peter went and began to visit with the believers in these other communities. You'll notice it says he went down to Lydda. And the reason being is, even though Lydda is north of, or it's northwest of, Jerusalem, we, we typically say we went up to, Jeru or up to Lydda when we go north and we went down south to Florida or something like that. But you remember Jerusalem was seven, 8,000 feet above sea level. Everybody went up to Jerusalem because when you come to Jerusalem, you got to start going up a hill in order to get there. And so Peter came down that hill, and even though he was going north and west of the city, he went down there to Lydda. Notice also, a lot in this first verse. Verse 32, it says, as Peter went here and there among them all. That too is an important point. For prior to this, Peter and the other apostles primarily stayed in Jerusalem. Now we saw in Acts chapter 8 where Peter and John, they went to the region of Samaria and they began to minister to those that were coming to the faith as a result of the ministry of Philip. But then it tells us that they left there and went back to Jerusalem. And so early on, first five years or so after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, Peter and the apostles primarily remained right there in Jerusalem. People came to them, they ministered to them, and then those people left. But you recall Jesus' words to them were that they were to go into all the world and to make disciples of all the nations. That they weren't to remain there in Jerusalem, but rather they were to scatter abroad, so to speak. They'd been hesitant to do that. We don't know why. For whatever reason, maybe it was comfortable there. Maybe it was by, they felt it was by God's design. But at some point in time, they would have to leave the Jerusalem and go if they were going to be obedient to what God had called them to do. And so here we see in this particular verse, verse 32, that Peter is breaking away from his previous pattern of remaining in a spot and letting people come to him, and he is now going to them. And the first location that Luke draws our attention to is this place that is called Lydda. Now, it's quite possible that he hit three or four cities on the way to Lydda, villages on the way to Lydda, but this is the first one that Luke draws our attention to. And so again in 32, it says, as he went here and there among them, he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. Lydda is located, it's about 20 miles or so outside of Jerusalem. It is uh, to the north of Jerusalem, it's toward the west of Jerusalem, it's as you're heading toward the coast, the Mediterranean coast, that is the area where Lydda would be located. And it says when he got there, when Peter got there, that he found a man named Aeneas. Now, not found in the sense of he was specifically looking for this man, but found that he came across, he came into contact with, and God began to direct his heart toward ministry toward this fellow. His name is Aeneas. We've read a couple occasions, people like Ananias, but this is a new fellow we're introduced to here in our Gospels. His name is Aeneas. It tells us that he was bedridden for eight years, 
and that the reason why he was bedridden was in verse 33 it points out because he was paralyzed. Now Peter must have taken a moment to get to know this guy. He didn't necessarily just see him on the side of the road, decide to go up to him and tell him he would be healed. And the reason why I say that is notice when he does uh, encounter him, he calls, he says his name. And so it seems he already had an interaction with this fella. He heard this guy's story a little bit. And then God moved in Peter's heart to say something to this man that Peter didn't say to everybody he came in contact with, but to say to this particular man that he should rise and make his bed. God moved in Peter's heart that he would step out and do this miracle in this man's life. I noticed three things about this. Number one, notice Peter is quite clear about who it is that is doing the healing. And so you'll notice he does not say, as a great apostle of Jesus, I, Peter, heal you. He doesn't say anything like that. And it's very important that he doesn't say it. Notice what he does say. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. What Peter knew and he wanted to make sure that others knew was that he was not the means of healing this man. He was simply the instrument through which God was going to work to bring healing to this man. And that is really, really important for us to understand. Because you do a great thing like heal a person in this particular way, the temptation no doubt is going to be there to draw attention to yourself. You do a great thing like communicate the gospel to some folks and lots of people respond. The temptation is going to be, wow, look what I just did. You do a great thing by serving some people in some way and being used to impact their lives and maybe even change their lives. The temptation is going to say, look what I did. But here, Peter, right from the start, wants to make sure everybody understands I'm not the one doing the healing. I'm just the instrument by which the healing is taking place. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. And he makes sure everybody knows that right from the start. Secondly, Peter says to Aeneas, he says there, rise and make your bed. Now, the bed that it is referring to, the best way to picture it, if you see mostly ladies going into a gym somewhere with their little mats, their yoga mats or whatever they are, that's the kind of bed that this guy would have had, perhaps a little bit thicker. All right, you're not your mattress that you would have at your house necessarily. And so he would have a mat of sorts. He would go to some public location, and almost certainly there he would essentially beg, hoping that people would see his need, they'd be kind to him, and they'd give him some alms of some sorts. And so Aeneas says here, or Peter says here, Aeneas, rise and make up your bed. Roll up your bed, pack up your bed. The idea being, be on your way. You don't need to remain here anymore. Jesus Christ heals you. And so he's not telling him to make his bed like your mom tells you to make your bed or used to tell you to make your bed. He's telling him to get up and be on his way, to go about his life, to start working again, all the things that he was unable to do to be able to do those things once more. And the third thing I noticed this, and so we have that first thing in which he makes sure everybody understands it's Jesus, we have the second thing, be healed, you're changed, go and live. And now the third thing that I notice is this, that this is almost word for word what Jesus said 
when he was in a similar situation. And I think that's significant. Of course, he may find himself facing similar situations, but I, I think it's significant that Peter says essentially the exact same thing that Jesus said. The event I'm referring to, it's recorded for us in the book of Mark. We studied that not too long ago on Sunday mornings. You may recall the incident where Jesus was teaching. He was up in the city of Capernaum, the village of Capernaum, on the northern coast there of the, the Sea of Galilee. And he's in this particular person's house, and lots of people are coming. They're trying to get in. They're trying to hear what Jesus has to say. And there's a group of men that bring their friend. He, too, is on a mat. And they're carrying kind of the four edges of this mat. They're trying to get close enough to Jesus that Jesus might heal their friend. They can't. You know the story. They go up on the roof. They, they rip open the, kind of that dirt thatch type roof. And they begin to lower the man right down there in the middle of the Bible study. And Jesus sees the man you remember. And you remember Jesus' words. Maybe you do. Jesus' words were, your sins are forgiven. And of course, his friends are probably like, no, not his sins, his legs. That's why we're here. We're here for his legs or whatever. And everyone's shocked, the, particularly the Pharisees, the religious leaders. How can this man forgive sins? Who does he think he is? And Jesus knows what they're thinking. That's what the Bible tells us. He knows what they're thinking. And he says to them, what's easier to say? Get up and walk or your sins are forgiven? Now, of course, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. How do I know what's going on inside of you? But if you really want to put me to the test, I tell a man that can't walk to get up and walk, we'll know in a minute or so whether I'm telling the truth. Well, of course, that man, he gets up and walk. And in that particular instance there, where there was that man that was paralyzed, Jesus said to the man, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Peter said to this man, rise, make your bed, and be on your way. Almost word for word, the one Jesus or Peter says what he had heard the Lord say. And it seems clear to me that what our friend here, Peter, is doing is simply seeking to imitate Jesus. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a circumstance like that where you have no idea what it is you're going to do, but you feel God prompting you to do something. The best thing that you can do in those instances, to the best of your ability, is imitate Jesus. And that's what Peter does. Well, it worked for Jesus. I'll give it a shot. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, take up your bed, and be on your way. And of course, that's what happened. Look at verse 34. Immediately, he rose. Some of you have had a situation where you've had a cast on your arm or a cast on your leg, and you, you haven't really used that body part for three months or whatever it might be. And you get that cast taking off, taken off. I'm talking about the old days when they put those big white cast on you and all that kind of stuff and your arm is all shriveled up or your leg is half the size of the other leg uh, because all the muscle is gone and things like that and you try and stand on it and you're wobbly well here this man who hadn't walked he was bedridden for eight years is able to rise he's strengthened this man was truly healed this wasn't some sort of fake healing and when he got around the corner he collapsed or something like that this man was truly healed and he rose immediately, made up his bed, no doubt, and he was on his way. Verse 35, it says, Now all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, they saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And so as a result of this healing, notice they don't turn to Peter. They don't follow Peter. They're not interested in Peter so much. 
They follow the Lord. They turn to the Lord. The text doesn't say it, but presumably Peter began to explain to them what exactly it meant to turn to the Lord. And so they're not just following because a man is healed. They saw the power of Jesus go forth. They asked the question, who is this Jesus? Peter begins to explain it, explains to them what it means to turn to the Lord, to repent of your sins, to recognize that he indeed is the Messiah and to follow him. Peter preached the gospel. Same thing that we saw him do back in Acts chapter 3 when he told that man there at the temple and everybody came around, what happened here? And he preached the gospel. And it says in verse 35, many turned and began to follow the Lord. Continuing on, we read in verse 36, it says, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated also means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and she died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, they sent two men to him. Two men urging him, please come to us without delay. And so Peter rose with, and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and he raised her up. And then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, who was a tanner. Well, like the previous account where Jesus or where Peter healed a paralyzed man, in the same sense that that had a similar account in Jesus's ministry, this too has a similar account in Jesus's ministry. Specifically, I'm referring to or some of the examples of you remember the raising back to life of Lazarus or the raising of Jairus's daughter. Each of those very similar in certain circumstances to this account. Now, I mentioned earlier that Lydda was about 20 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Joppa is about another 20 miles in the same exact direction. It is located right on the coast of the Mediterranean. Today, Joppa is sort of enveloped in the larger city of Tel Aviv. If you've ever flown into Israel, you probably flew into the Ben-Gurion Airport. That's on the outskirts of Tel Aviv. That's where Joppa is. It's a coastal city. You remember in the book of Jonah where it says God called Jonah to go uh, to Nineveh, but instead he went down to Joppa to get on a ship to go to Tarshish, which is on the other side of the Mediterranean. And so Joppa is this port city. It's about 40 miles from Jerusalem. Again, we don't know, did Peter hit other cities in between and minister and preach and things like that? It doesn't say. But this is the, the second account, second story that uh, Luke decides to draw our attention to. And he begins by drawing our attention to the fact that there was this woman there whose name was Tabitha or Dorcas, which I believe is the Aramaic of it. Same name, same meaning. Both of those mean like gazelle or deer or something like that. 
And so sometimes I'll refer to her as Tabitha, sometimes I'll refer to her as Dorcas, but we're talking about the same lady. And she lived there in this little town of Joppa, and she died, and word had began to filter around, filter around, and word made its way to the city of Lydda or somewhere in between where Peter was. And word was sent to him, come, to deal with this thing. Notice it says here in verse 38, they said, please come to us without delay. Now the text doesn't say clearly whether or not these two men were sent to fetch Peter before Tabitha died or after Tabitha died. There's enough kind of vagueness in the text that it's possible that they sent for Peter while she was dying and before he got there, she had actually died. But the plainest reading of the text, to be honest, is that she had already died. And then they called Peter and said, come. I don't know what they were expecting him to do necessarily. It doesn't seem they were expecting him to raise her back to life. But either way, by the time that Peter gets there, according to verse 37, this woman Tabitha had died. It says that they had washed her. That means they had prepared her body for burial. They had wrapped her body for burial. And it seems that she was lying in state in some upper room uh, until, I guess, until Peter himself would arrive. Something of interest to note, we've talked about this. It was the custom of Jews to bury their dead before sunset. Um, and we see that, examples of that in the scripture. Even today, that continues to go on with Orthodox Jews. Um, in that day, that was strictly adhered to in Jerusalem. Not so strictly adhered to outside of Jerusalem. Outside of Jerusalem, the person was often buried two to th within two or three days, I guess allowing for more people time to gather. And here we are outside of Jerusalem. She is dead. They prepared her body, and they laid her in this upper room, not, contra not contradicting other portions of Scripture where we see their tendency was different. But here we are. Peter is supposed to come. Again, we don't know exactly what their intentions are, why they want Peter to come. I think this is why many commentators think she must not have been dead before, and they want him to come because he just raised a paralyzed man. Of course, he could heal this particular lady of her sickness. But they send for Peter. And he makes his way there. Notice when he gets there, now that she's dead, there's no mention. They're not begging him, please raise her back to life. It doesn't seem like that's their expectation at all. They talk about her from the perspective of like the past tense. This is who she was. This is what she did. She was such a wonderful person. Not from the perspective of can you heal her? Can you raise her back to life? We see in verse 36, it says, they say, or Luke does, that she was full of good works and of charity. And then in verse 39, notice it says that all of the widows, her friends, they were weeping and that they were showing to Peter, you know, this lady was so good, she was so great. And then they're showing to Peter, look, she made this for me, this tunic, and she made this garment for me while she was still with them. We read that there in verse 39. This woman, this lady Dorcas, Tabitha, spent her life being kind and caring to the needs of others. And as is evident in the passage here, 
her death was a huge loss for the community. She was a beloved member of the Christian community there in that town. And the reason why she was, again, if you look at verse 36, was because she was full of good works and acts of charity. She was kind, she was sweet, she was caring, she was concerned for others, and she touched the lives of other people. And so her loss was felt by those other people. Luke says, full of good works, acts of charity. We might look at that and think, well, that's just two different ways of saying the same thing. There's actually a slight variation in these two things. Acts of charity refers to alms, as and some of your Bible versions translate it that way. And by alms, we refer to financial gifts. And so this was a lady that met the needs of other people financially. Good works refers to actions. It refers to the various deeds that she did on behalf of others, like some of the clothes, for, for instance, that she made for them. And so she was full of good works, and she was full of acts of charity. And I think that's significant, because this woman is commended, which means she's someone that we might want to emulate in our lives as we seek to live our lives for Christ. And I think it's significant that she's both full of, uh, of the alms, the acts of charity, and the good deeds. Because for some of us, it's not too hard to write a check or to drop a few bucks into the box. It's not too hard for us to give financially, necessarily. But the idea of getting up and getting our hands dirty, that's kind of beyond the scope of how far we're willing to go to get involved in other people's lives. I'd rather just write a check, I've done my part, and now I don't have to think about it anymore. But we see this woman, she was full of good works and the financial acts of charity. For others of us, we're more than willing to help in all sorts of physical ways. We'll do all sorts of things. We'll get our hands dirty. But when it comes to our money, then we become very tight-fisted. And we're not as willing to give to others to meet their needs. But again, we see with this woman, who is commended, and thus one that we want to emulate, that she was full of good works and acts of charity. That's the first thing we notice about Tabitha. Second point that I'll draw to your attention is that word full. And so it says that she was full of good works and acts of charity. Small little word, but it's a significant word. It means to be thoroughly permeated with something. And so let's put those words in there. This woman's life was thoroughly permeated with good works and acts of charity. Her entire life was about it. This wasn't something she did one day a year. This wasn't something she did one day a week. Her entire life was thoroughly permeated with good works and acts of charity. And she's commended to us in the scripture, which means she's someone that you and I should seek to emulate. We hear that, wow, thoroughly permeated. And we might think, wow, what a remarkable lady. Well, yes and no. Yes, because it is remarkable to find a person that is so consumed with their love for the Lord that their life becomes thoroughly permeated with a love for others. And so we look at this woman, Tabitha, and we say, you know what? Yeah, she is indeed a remarkable woman. 
But at the same time, it shouldn't be so remarkable that her life was thoroughly permeated with good works and acts of charity, because quite frankly, such should be the evidence of all of our lives that have been impacted by the Lord. That a care and a concern for others, so much so that moves us to action, should be the heart of everyone that names the name of Christ. As the Apostle John would write, we love others because he first loved us. The whole point of that passage, it's in 1 John chapter 4, the whole point of that passage is this, that in response to the love of God that we have experienced in our lives, and I'm talking to believers, but in response to the love of God that we have experienced in our lives, it is our responsibility to love others, both because we have command, been commanded to do so, but also because God has moved in our hearts in such a way that he will prompt us to do so. Here's how James described it. James chapter 2. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, well, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, such a faith is dead. Now, people have wrestled with that Bible verse. Some concludes, conclude that it proves that salvation, at least partially, is based on the good works that we do. That's what some have concluded. In fact, the, the reformers, and by that I'm referring to the Protestant reformers, the 1500s, the reformers actually considered leaving the book of James out of their Bibles because of this particular verse, which seems to show that salvation is based on faith and good works, not faith alone. The reality is this verse is found in our Bibles, and the book of James is found in our Bibles. And the reason it is, is because it does not teach that salvation, even partially, is the result of our good works. We know the scripture is clear that salvation is by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. But what this passage does teach is that good works accompany those that have experienced salvation. That the Christian does not do good works so that they can be saved, but they do good works because they have been saved. Once more, not simply because they are commanded to, but because God works internally inside of them too. And so God prompts us. He motivates us. He brings us to a place of seeing a need and then saying to ourselves about that need, well, why shouldn't I be the one to meet that need? That's what Tabitha had come to understand. That's how she lived her life, and that's what her life was marked by. Tabitha, this lady Dorcas, was deeply interested in being a practical blessing to others. And she loved the Lord, and she demonstrated her love for the Lord in very practical ways toward others. And once more, she is a model for each one of us to emulate.
those of you that are perhaps a little bit older in the faith, like older than me in age, I would say probably maybe in your 60s, 70s, beyond, like that you may recall in many churches, they used to have what were called Dorcas societies. And those were societies of individuals, oftentimes ladies, that would come together and they would sew and things like that, and they would provide clothing for those that were in need. And again, they were called Dorcas societies, and they were named after this particular woman. She's a model for each of us to emulate. I don't know how to sew. I don't plan on taking up that habit. But there are plenty of ways that I can serve other people as their needs become available to me. And there are for you as well. And so as I said earlier, her death was a huge loss for those that knew her so well and had been cared for her so well, by her so well. Notice verse 39. It says that her friends are weeping. It says they're telling Peter of the many different ways that she had been a blessing to them. I can imagine Peter kind of being in that room, kind of ready to move on to perhaps do what it was that he had come to do. And here are these ladies that are coming up to him and they're crying. He's trying to console them and they're, they're showing the clothes that she made and all of that. And Peter's, oh, yes, it is very nice. And, you know, he doesn't know the difference between a nut or whatever. Uh-huh, sure. And he's trying to be polite here. And then notice it says, finally, in verse 40, but Peter put them all aside or outside. Peter finally said, oh, okay, everybody. He gave them all a chance to kind of say what they wanted to say. And then he says, you know, could I just have a moment alone in here? And he puts all of these folks outside, and he's alone there with this woman's body, the body that used to house her spirit. And it says, Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down, and he prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Well, that's certainly unexpected, particularly the next verse where it says she does arise. If you're not familiar with this passage, that may not have been what you expected to see. You probably expected he might dedicate the body. Lord, thank you for this woman. She was a wonderful lady, and we're grateful for her. Raise up others like her, Lord. But it's surprising to see him saying, no, actually raise her. But God had moved in Peter's heart to pray this very audacious prayer. Paul, the apostle, he calls this the gift of faith. To know something, to believe something with such a certitude that you act on it. Paul says that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. He teaches that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And here Peter, he exercises that gift. He says to this woman who is clearly dead and has been dead for at least a day or more, he says to her to rise Commentators wonder why Peter put everyone out of the room before doing this. And there are some that suggest that Peter did this in case it didn't work. You know, Tabitha arise, and these little cricket things, you know, they're off in the distance, nothing happens. And everyone will be like, who invited this guy? We got the wrong apostle. Is John nearby? Let's bring him. So some people think that is why, maybe, I tend to doubt it, but perhaps that's the reason why. Maybe it was because if she was raised back to life with everybody around, each of them would have had a heart attack and then he would have had a bigger problem having to heal all these other people and bring them back to life. 
But whatever his motivation was, Peter puts all the others outside of the room and he kneels down and he begins to pray. And then it seems during that communication with the Lord, the Lord moves in his heart and he says to this woman, Tabitha, arise. And look at the rest of verse 40. And she opened her eyes and she saw Peter and she got up. She sat up. And Peter gave her his hand and he raised her up. He caused her to stand. And then he called the saints. There's that word again, used the second time here. And the widows. And he presented this woman alive. In the previous account of the healing of Aeneas, I made mention at that point of the similarity of that healing to something Jesus had previously done. Well, again, here we have an event with a definite similarity to some of the occurrences in Jesus' life as well. I mentioned this briefly before. Peter, or excuse me, Jesus, during his time on the earth, resuscitated or raised back to life three different individuals. We read in Luke chapter 7 where he raised the widow's son. That was in the midst of a funeral procession. And he kind of stops the procession and he raises the son back to life. We know in John chapter 11, the well-known passage, where Jesus raised his friend, Lazarus, who had been dead and in the grave for four days, raises him back to life. But the account I'm thinking of and the similarity to the one that we have here in Acts chapter 9 is recorded for us in three of the four Gospels. We read it in Matthew 9, we read it in Mark 5, and we read it in Luke chapter 8. And that is where Jesus raised a little girl that had died back to life. You'll probably remember the story when I mentioned her father's name. Her father was Jairus. And Jairus was the synagogue ruler. And all we know about this little girl, as far as her name is concerned, is that she was Jairus' daughter. A little girl. It's interesting to note that in the original language, the word for little girl is very similar to Tabitha. It's Talitha, T-A-L-I-T-H-A, instead of T-A-B-I-T-H-A. And like the account involving Peter, at that raising of Jairus' daughter, there were all sorts of mourners that were present. And Jesus put all those mourners out as well. He put everybody out except the mom and the dad and a couple of disciples. Peter amongst them was there with them. And we read in Mark chapter 5, he put them all outside, Jesus that is, and he took the child's father and the child's mother and those that were with him, meaning the closest disciples, And he went into where the child was, and then Jesus took the little girl by the hand, and he said, Talitha Kumi. Jesus said, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, arise. Remember what Peter said. Peter said, Tabitha Kumi. Tabitha, arise. And once more, I think what Peter is doing is exactly what he observed the Lord doing. If you're ever in doubt how to move forward in a particular instance, I think a general rule of thumb, a very good rule that you can apply, is serve others as Jesus served others. Speak as Jesus spoke. And love as Jesus loved. And here we have two instances where Peter is faced with a circumstance where he pretty much hasn't found himself before, at least not where he was the one who was going to have to act. 
And what he simply does is imitate Jesus. That's what each of us are called to do, is imitate the Lord. You know, a little while back, there was those little bands that went around, what would Jesus do, WWJD? And we probably had two responses here, I suspect, from the believing community. Some of you thought it was the greatest thing in the world. You got every shirt that you could get. You got every little band there. You said it all the time, WWJD. And some of you, you really took it to heart and you applied it. Others of you probably went the other direction. That's stupid. That's so goofy. That's just childish. I'm not going to do that sort of thing. And so you responded in that way. Is there anybody here that responded in that way? I know one of them is probably teaching our Sunday school right now because I know that's how Brother Will would respond. I see Brother Mark over here. He didn't like it. I liked it. I didn't get a band. I didn't get a T-shirt. But I liked the concept. And I liked the idea that when you find yourself in a particular circumstance and you're not sure how to respond in that circumstance, to go back into your mind and to trace through the scriptures and to see how Jesus approached a, a particular circumstance I think is a wise thing to do. It's hard to go wrong when you imitate Jesus in your interactions with other people. And you may not be called to raise people back to life. You may not be called to raise up paralyzed men and things like that. But you will be called to serve other people. And you will be called to love other people. And you will be called to speak into li the lives of other people. If I may suggest, get to know Jesus really well. Become an expert of the Gospels that are found in our Scriptures, that trace the working and the words and the teachings and the actions and the way in which Jesus loved other people so that you will know it so well that when you find yourself faced with a similar circumstance, you can apply that to your life as well and you can imitate Jesus. Peter does that in two instances here. Verse 42, we go on. It says, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed there in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And so just like Lydda, people began to hear. Did you hear what happened? Lydda, um, what's your face? Dorcas was dead and is now alive. Oh my gosh, how did that happen? Well, there was this fellow Peter. And Peter came to him, and no doubt, as he had done in other instances, Peter used it as an opportunity to turn people to Jesus and to highlight and magnify the name of Jesus. It tells us in our verse, verse 43, that he stays there in that town for many days. And notice who it says he stays with, Simon, a tanner. Now, a tanner is not a guy with a good golden tan or, you know, as a a booth somewhere you can rent so you can have a golden tan. A tanner was a fellow that worked to produce leather. That was their job, was to produce leather. So leather pouches, leather belts, leather water or wine bags of some sorts, things that people would use on the farm, people that people would use in the shop. A tanner was a fellow that worked to produce leather products. Elsewhere in the scripture, those items are many times called, sometimes called skins. So they're not referred to as leather. That's more of a term we use. But they were referred to as skins. And the skins were because they came from the skins of dead animals. And so the mention of this man Simon's trade is significant here. Because the Jewish people considered tanning to be a disreputable business because of the way in which it required constant contact 
with the body of dead animals, which caused a ceremonial uncleanness. And so those that were very strict to the ceremonies of Judaism would stay away from the tanners. As a matter of fact, there was an exception in sort of the Jewish customs that if you were a woman who was married to a man that like, had a life change and took on the job of a tanner, that that gave you permission to divorce that husband. And so they didn't respect these guys. They didn't like these guys. They were ceremonially unclean and all these kinds of things. And so it's thrown in here that Peter stays there in Joppa with Simon, who is a tanner, a guy that was considered ceremonially unclean. Again, it was strictly forbidden to associate with those individuals. But here we're told that Peter went on to live with Simon the Tanner. tanner showing us that God is doing a changing work within Peter, where he's no longer bound by the particular Jewish regulations, particularly not this Jewish regulation. That Peter is becoming less concerned about Jewish traditions and ceremonial expectations than he was previously. And if you know anything about the next chapter, if you've read ahead into chapter 10, that is going to become a key central theme of where the book of Acts goes from here on. And that is where we'll stop for today. So a little primer, get you a little excited, a little cliffhanger at the end of our study so that you come back and turn the program on next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this guy, Peter. And Lord, as we think back into the Gospels and we think of this man's life, Lord, we see a guy that regularly uh, stumbled and failed, said things that shouldn't have been said, acted impulsively, made mistakes, sinned in some pretty significant ways. And here he is being used by you, Lord, to heal a paralyzed man of eight years and to raise a woman back to life. Jesus, you have done, you had done a changing work in his life and you're using him for good in the life of others, for your glory, that he might point others to you. And Father, I, I have to imagine for the vast majority that are gathered here today, that's our desire. You know where we come from, you know the type of person we are, you know the mistakes and sins we made this week. And yet we've come. We've come into your presence today because of the work of your son. We believe your word that because of the work of your son and the faith that you've birthed within us to trust in the work of your son, that we, confess, we can confess our sins knowing that you're faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, once again, we rely on your grace and mercy. And we go away from this place refreshed. And we pray, Lord, use us in the lives of others that many might come to know Jesus as we interact with them. And we pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.